Please turn with me in your Bibles and to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 16. Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 to 16. Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 to 16. Please then hear with me a reading of God's Word. And He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, the book of Revelation has really shown to us the unity of the entire Bible, hasn't it? Whether it's the tree of life in the book of Genesis, the ten plagues in the book of Exodus, our Lord on the throne in Isaiah 6, the Ancient of Days as judge in Daniel 7, the vision of the future temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, we've seen how all of these texts tie in to this book, the book of Revelation, which describes for us the, the church age. Right? That age, that period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, as well as the age to come when He will return. Right? We've seen how many of these texts have found their fulfillment in what's described in these 22 chapters. What we've also seen is that the, the meaning of many of these Old Testament texts, in light of what we have read, have, has been brought out all the more, hasn't it? Right? We've, we've come to understand the, the fuller meaning, the, the richer meaning of the text in light of this newer revelation that God has given to His New Testament church found in this book. And it's the, this unity, as Scripture has a, a unifying message that we are immediately confronted with again at the very beginning of our text this morning in verse 10. Now, as we read our Bibles, there are some Old Testament texts that stand out more than others, don't they? I'm sure that many of the texts that we have referenced Throughout our entire study of this book, many of you, perhaps, over the last 15 months, didn't recognize right away what was being referenced. 
Not, it wasn't until we went back to the Old Testament text and we read it and you've seen, ah, now I see how this lays behind the text of the book of Revelation. But our text today is not one of those texts, is it? But our text today stands out drastically, doesn't it? Anyone who's been a Christian for some time, who's read their Bible, is acquainted with what stands behind verse 10 in our text today. That's Daniel chapter 12, isn't it? Right, Daniel chapter 12, which describes the, the end of time. And it's here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 that we read this. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Later in verse 9, that command is repeated. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And so as we read our text today, there's no doubt, is there, that the Daniel text correlates to what we have read in verse 10. But now John is commanded to do what? The very opposite of what, was, of what Daniel was commanded to do. Right? Daniel was commanded to seal up the book. But John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. For the time is near. So we have to ask the question. Right? Why is Daniel told to seal up the words of the book? But now John is told to not seal them, but rather to reveal them. Well, the question is, what was the vision given to Daniel? Well, the vision that was given to Daniel was a vision that described a final tribulation time. It described the final destruction of all of the wicked kingdoms of the world. It described the ultimate deliverance of God's people. And it described the establishment of that everlasting kingdom of God. And so we need to understand this, that, that Daniel's vision in Daniel's time was not one that could be fully understood. But it did not have immediate application for those who were living in that day. For they stood in a different period of redemptive history. What was being described to Daniel in that vision was remote. It was far off. It was still distant. But this is why Daniel isn't told to, to burn up the book. He's not told to destroy the book. But he's told to seal it up. Why? Because there would be a time when the words of the prophecy would have direct application to those living in the day that the visions were describing. And then at that time it would become imperative. Right? That those words be unveiled. That they would be revealed. That they would be heard, understood, and testified to in John's day, brothers and sisters, is that day. Right? John's day is that day. The period of redemptive history that John stands in. The church age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is what the visions address. And so they must no longer be sealed up. But now they must be revealed. For Christ has taken His seat upon the throne. Right? The devil has, has been cast down. The battle is at an all-time fever pitch. And so the time is now that the words of the prophecy be exposed so that the saints know how to live in light of them 
For the time is near. For the time is near. You see, Daniel wrote about the last days. But Daniel wasn't living in them. He wrote about the last days, but he wasn't living in them. But John is. You and I are. Right right now, they are beginning to be fulfilled during this millennial reign of Christ, which is that church age. And now, in light of this new revelation that the angel gives to John, we have greater or, or better insight into those realities that the Old Testament saints were kept from fully knowing and understanding. Right? We need to see that when Daniel wrote that time was not near, because there were other things on the prophetic calendar that still had to take place. Right? There were other prophetic events that still had to happen. Think about the coming of Christ. His life, His death, His, His resurrection, His ascension. All of those things stood on the prophetic calendar before the end. But now as John writes, in John's day, there is nothing else on the prophetic calendar that must happen before the second coming of Christ. Right? This is why now the, the prophecy is to be revealed. This is why the angel says to John, do not seal up the words, for the time is near. It is the next event on the prophetic calendar. And in light of the, the nearness of our Lord's coming, the angel reveals three things to John that is important for us all to, to listen to and, under, and to understand. For when Christ comes again, when He returns, there will be no more opportunity to stop and to listen and to understand and to believe what the angel is revealing. And so we must do so now. We must do so now. And so the three things that the angel reveals to John in our text are these. First, that Christ is judge. And these will be our our three points this day. First, that Christ is judge. Second, that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. And then lastly, that Christ is the victorious Messiah. That Christ is the victorious Messiah. Now it's because Christ is judge that the angel can say in verse 11, let the evil doer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Now as we read that, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Not the part about the righteous being righteous and the holy being holy, but the the part about the evildoer still doing evil and the filthy still being filthy. As we read that text, doesn't it seem like there's a an equal exhortation to both? And so, are we to believe that this angel, who is a divine messenger from God, comes with a message that says for the evil person to, to continue to persist in doing evil upon the earth? Well, for that answer, we have to go back to Daniel 12. Remember we said in Daniel 4 and Daniel, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9, uh, he's told to seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, this is what we read. And listen, it sounds very familiar to, to verse 11 in our text. Many shall purify themselves 
and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. What the text describes is a time in which the words that Daniel is sealing up will be a blessing to God's people. Right? For persecution and trials and tribulations will come. But when they hear the words, they will receive them, believe, and know how to live in light of them. Right? They will live in obedience to God's words. Yet, what is also true at the same time, the wicked will hear, and the wicked won't understand. And the wicked will continue to live in their wickedness in disobedience to God's Word. And isn't this the case, brothers and sisters? Even today, we, we see that effect of God's Word. Even in this church, don't we? As the church has believers and unbelievers in it. As the Word goes forth, what happens? Right, to those who believe, it corrects. Right? The commands they obey. It causes increase, growth in, in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But yet, for the unbeliever in the midst, what does it do? It oftentimes causes them to despise God's Word. To grow angry with God's Word. To reject God's Word because they, they don't want to hear about what God has to say about their lifestyle or their sin. Oftentimes, what does that then cause people to do? To forsake the church altogether? Or they go places that tickle their ears. They don't speak about law or sin or they need to be holy, only about grace. But we need to recognize that God's Word is a, a twofold effect. Right? As it goes forth, it bears a twofold fruit from its hearers. Either the righteous, right, who have been made righteous by the grace of God, are enabled by the Spirit to walk in the fruit of the Spirit and, and to bear more fruit in their life, or the wicked hear it, and all it does is produce a, a harder heart, and they continue to do the evil they were doing. They continue to be filthy as they have always been filthy. Right? This is what God's Word has always done as He sent it forth by the prophets. Right? He, he called prophets to go out to people to declare His Word. Why? Oftentimes to make more blind those who are already blind. Or also to encourage His people by the truth. That they might receive it, believe it, and live by it. And so what we need to see are verse 11, what it's pointing out is that as that day draws near, as that day dawns, the return of Christ, that the righteous and unrighteous are going to continue to be living in that present condition. Right? That's what it's pointing out here for us. But until that day, what we also see happening is whatever side of that you are on, the righteous or unrighteous, God is, is ripening you for the day of harvest. He is ripening you for the day of harvest when He will return to judge the world. Right? For the saints, what is He doing now? He, he conforms us to the image of Christ. He is making us fit and ready for heaven. Right? For the ungodly, what is happening? They are continuing to do what? By their rebellion. Store up the wrath of God. Right? Continue to be stored up for that great day. And it's going to be stored up in full when He returns to judge the living and the dead. This is exactly what we read about in Revelation chapter 14. Turn over there quickly with me, please. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 14. 
This is describing the end, the judgment. In verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And so we see that before the end comes, as the righteous continue doing righteousness, as the evil continues to do evil, right? That, that they are continually to do those things until the appointed time when they are ripe for Christ to return for the harvest. But as he does that, what we, what we see is that whatever side of that you are on, it's going to become more evident. Right? It's going to become more evident if you belong to the side of the godly or the ungodly. Right? As, as time passes, it's going to be more evident. Do you, are you on the side of Of the bridegroom or the harlot? On the righteous side or the unrighteous side? Right? That will be all the more evident. And so when the judgment day comes, no one will have an excuse, will they? For God says He's going to give everyone exactly what they deserve for what they have done. Right? The wicked will be exposed for they rejected God's Word. They acted evilly. They continued to, to stack up sin upon sin upon sin in rebellion against the great lawgiver. This is why we read this in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That word recompense also means reward. It means reward. So Jesus says, in in light of the prophecy of this book, in light of the message going out, and either hearing, Believing, trusting, and obeying, or hearing, distrusting, disbelieving, and living in rebellion, I come to give you exactly what you are to be rewarded for what you have done. People today say that we live in a meritocracy. Have you ever heard that? We live in a meritocracy. That essentially means that, or describes a system in which whatever it is that you receive, you receive based on your talents and abilities. Right, rather than upon um, a so, your social standing, your social class, or some perceived privilege. Now, there's many people in this country who would, who would say, no, we don't live in a meritocracy. Right, they would say, in fact, there is a, a segment of the population that all the systems that we have in place are rigged against. And so they always come out on the lesser end. And then you always have these other people, this other segment of the population who kind of always has a leg up. So when that segment of the population gets a job, it's not because of their talents and abilities, but rather it's because of who they knew or or where they came from or, or who their mom and dad are. But let us see this, brothers and sisters. When Christ returns again, there will be a true meritocracy. There will be a true meritocracy. He will give to everyone exactly what they deserve. And so if equality of outcome is what people want, then there ought not to be any complaint when He returns in judgment. 
For that is exactly what will happen for everyone who has rejected Jesus as Lord. Because God shows no partiality, does He? He doesn't care what part of the the world you come from. He doesn't care how much money you have in your bank account, what kind of car you drive, your accomplishments, your family name. He doesn't care about any of those things. He simply will come to reward you based entirely upon what you have done. And it's here then that Jesus reveals Himself to be the coming judge. He is the coming judge who will render a verdict to every single person. Not on some subjective scale made by man, but on an objective scale, which is the moral law. He will judge you based upon the law for those of you who have sought to live by it. And all will be found guilty under the law. For none have, have obeyed it personally, perfectly, perpetually. And so what is their reward? What does one garner for all of their wicked thoughts and deeds and, and actions and speech? Well, it's eternal death. It's eternal death. Right? If we thought that Christ would, was despised in His first coming, how much more will He be hated than in His second coming? Right, for when Christ first came, He didn't come to condemn, but to save. Right, he came to invite sinners. Right, to trust in His name. To receive the eternal reward of, of heavenly glory with Him. And still He was rejected by the world. But when He returns, that opportunity to repent and believe will, will vanish. It will go away. And as we read about in Revelation chapter 19, He will come again. But this time He will come with eyes like flaming fire to execute perfect righteousness according to His holy law. And with that flaming fire, He will strike down the nations who have lived in opposition to Him. But while the unbeliever will hate the coming of Christ, the believer ought to rejoice. Right? While they hate the coming, we ought to welcome the coming of Christ. Why? For we know, for those who like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, who say, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man with unclean lips. Right? For those of us like Paul who says, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ that I forsake my own righteousness according to the law for the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. We know that for these people, for us, that Christ has already obeyed that law perfectly. That He has kept all of the law's demands that we could not. And so all that He has did has become ours. Right? So that when Christ returns, we can smile as we see our Savior descend. Right? Knowing that yes, we will be judged according to works but we'll be judged according to the works of our Savior and what He has done on each of our behalf. So that the the wicked are going to be judged according to their works. And their reward will be eternal damnation. Ours will be eternal salvation. But not because we have earned it, but rather because Christ Jesus our Lord has earned it for us. And this is an important point that we all must understand. For one day, each and every one of us will stand before the great white throne judgment seat. 
Right? We will all stand before Christ the Judge. And we will have to come before Him. And we will have to render works. Present to Him works. And be rewarded based on the presentation of those works. And so the question is, when you approach that judgment seat, when you come before Christ the Judge, will you present to Him your works? Or will you present to Him the works of Christ? That's an important point we all need to keep in mind. With that, please look with me at verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is our second point then, which is Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Here we see Jesus reveals Himself to be the eternal Son of God. Jesus reveals Himself to be divine. He reveals His deity. Just as Yahweh in the Old Testament refers to Himself as the first and the last. We see this in a text like Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides Me. Now we see what? Jesus takes that title and applies it to Himself. Saying what? That He is from everlasting to everlasting. That He is the Sovereign Lord. That He is the Eternal God. That He is infinite in being. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. But He's saying more than that as well. Right? Jesus is saying that He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning, the end, the first, the last. In what sense? Well, He is the Alpha of all things in the sense that it is by Him and through Him that all things were created that exist, right? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. That is how He is the Alpha, but how is He the Omega? How is He the last? How is He the end? Well, as we've read many times throughout our study of the book of Revelation, it is Jesus Christ who is going to bring history to its conclusion, isn't He? He's he's coming to judge and to cast the unrighteous into the lake of fire and to usher in His people into the the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that what the book of Revelation has shown to us? But not only is Jesus the first and the last, but doesn't that imply something else as well? Doesn't it imply that He is everything in between? I mean, think about Revelation chapter 5. Isn't that exactly what that describes for us? Do you remember when the angel says, Who is worthy to take the scroll? And remember what we said that scroll was. The eternal decree of God. Right. So the angel saying, Who is worthy to take the scroll and to bring the kingdom to consummation? Right. Who is worthy to take the scroll and bring history to its end, to its conclusion, to its aim, to its goal? And who was it that stood up and said, I... It was Jesus. Jesus took the scroll and Jesus opened the scroll and Jesus now currently is directing and guiding human history to its very end. Which conveys to us all what? The necessity to look to Christ for everything that we need. Because not only is Jesus the Alpha and the Omega of the history of the world, we need to understand this as well. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega of our redemption. He is the Alpha and the Omega of our redemption. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God's plan of salvation for us to come through Jesus Christ, we see is located where? In His eternal counsel. This is His eternal purpose for His people. That salvation start and stop with Jesus. This is what the apostles declare in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Right? Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why is that? Because it is Christ and Christ alone who has equipped and appointed and anointed for the task. Right? Jesus is the only person ever who could and did accomplish that very goal as Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so people need to understand that there is no other Alpha and Omega that we can look to. Right? There is no other beginner or ender to our faith. Right? People want to be their own Alpha and Omega today, don't they? Right? People want their salvation to start and end with themselves. But nobody has the power to begin their salvation. Nobody has the power to, to bring it to its conclusion. Right? The one who, who raises to life alone is the Alpha and the Omega. That the one who himself died and rose again. And now who has all authority right, to bestow that life right, to all of those whom he has died to redeem. This is why, brothers and sisters, we then can be called blessed. Right, look at verses 14 and 15 with me, please. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. As we've said before and as we are reminded here in verse 14 that the worthiness of the saints that makes them fit for the reward of salvation is not to be found in themselves. Right, The worthiness of the saints that makes us fit for salvation and for that reward is Christ. Right? Christ's worthiness. Because by His blood, He has washed our defiled garments, hasn't He? And He has clothed us in those garments or the robe of salvation so that we now have the right to the tree of life. So that we now have a, a right to Christ in the new Jerusalem. So that now we have a right to the blessings and benefits that we share through our union with Christ. It is only on that basis though, right? Christ alone, that we enter the city by the gates and why others don't enter that city. And that city reflects the, the very character, or excuse me, what's described here. Describes the very character of the city though, doesn't it? How you have those who enter into the city through Christ and you have those who are living outside of the city. That's exactly what we've seen described in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 21, isn't it? That the ungodly were outside of the city. And this is why we are blessed, isn't it? That in our eternal abode that we will be in, right, never again will, will evil ever penetrate the presence of God in the eternal city that we will be living in. 
Right? Never again, brothers and sisters, will be hurt by evil. Never again shall anything uh, uh, sinful or rebellious right, be brought into the presence of God, for it will be cast outside of the eternal city for good. Right? It will be outside with, with the dogs. Why are they called dogs? Well, dogs in the ancient world were a despised creature. It's not like dogs today, is it? Right? Today we give our dogs human names. Bob and Harry. We dress our dogs up, don't we? In sweaters. Some people even let them sleep in the, their bed with them. Kiss them on the lips. We take them to, to doggy daycare. That's not how it was in the ancient world, brothers and sisters. They were a despised creature. Our dogs have a good today. But also, that word dog is used because it's a, a, a word that describes the unbeliever as well. This is a word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3. He uses this word about the unbelieving Jews. He calls them dogs. And so that's really what it's talking about. Right? Unbelievers. Why sorcerers? Well, what do sorcerers do? They make a practice of lying. Right? They make a practice of falsehood. And so too do all of those folks who, who are numbered here. Murderers, idolaters, the, the sexually immoral. And so it's all unbelievers. It's all liars outside the church and within the church who will be found to be outside the city gates. Right? Everyone who, who loves falsehood, who loves lies, who loves sin, and who does not practice truth will be found outside the city gates. And so we need to see that this vision simply represents the reality that the ungodly have no place in the new creation. Right? They have no place there. This is a place that has been set apart by God exclusively for His people who He has washed with His blood and who long for the appearance of His coming. This leads us then to our third and our final point this morning which is Christ is the victorious Messiah. Look with me at verse 16, please. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now these titles, the root, the descendant of David, and the bright morning star, Jesus here uses to, to combine many Old Testament prophecies together. Right? Prophecies that relate to the Messianic King's triumph over all of His enemies. And we're just going to consider three of them uh, this morning to help us understand why He's using these titles. And so the first comes from the book of Isaiah. So please turn with me to Isaiah. And we'll look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 1 and verse 10. So in verse 1 we read this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Look at verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So Jesus, by applying these titles to himself, demonstrates that he has begun to fulfill these prophecies. Jesus 
or excuse me, Jesse, right, is the father of David to whom God promised an eternal kingdom. Well, by naming himself the descendant of David, Jesus is saying that when he comes at the, at the end of the age, that he is the one who fulfills the Old Testament hope of salvation. That he is the one who shall take the seed of that eternal kingdom and establish it forever. Right? That's what he's saying here. Secondly, let's look at Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24 and verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Now this, brothers and sisters, is a prophecy of Balaam. But this is a prophecy that God had given to Balaam to foretell about the coming of Christ. And what he says is that not only is Christ going to come as a, as a rising uh, star to give light, but rather... Or, or in addition, he's going to come to, to crush his enemies and to bring salvation to the people of God. Right? So that Jesus is the, the bright morning star who has come in his first coming to signal the dawn of a new age. And in his second coming, when he draws near, he will establish that eternal age and he will crush his every enemy and he will reign as conquering king upon the throne with his scepter in hand. And as that Morning star. Didn't we read in, in verse 21, no longer will we need the sun, right? Because it is His brightness as that bright morning star that shall shine in the immediate presence of His people forever. The last and final text we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 60. Turn back to Isaiah and we'll look at chapter 60. Isaiah 60, in the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So we need to see then Jesus uses these titles to say that, that He is the Messiah. Right? He is the victorious Messiah who is coming to conquer His every enemy as the promised Son of David. But not only that, that, that as the Messiah, He is the one through not just Israel, but all the nations shall come for salvation. Right? Christ in His first coming brought about that new redemptive day through His redemptive work, but He indicates that that new day will culminate in His final return where all of His people will experience the very fullness of that salvation. But this, brothers and sisters, is the reason why all sinners must look to Christ right now. All people must look to Him, Jew and Gentile alike. It was the, the Jews who were the physical seed of Abraham who thought that they had uh, the kingdom to themselves, right, based upon their 
physical lineage, didn't they? Right? It, was, it was these people, though, who, not knowing it, fulfilled the, or helped to fulfill the very prophecies of the Old Testament by putting Christ to death. But it is that Messiah that they put to death that what does Peter do? He presents before them. Right, that He is the Messiah that you must believe in for the forgiveness of sin. Right, All nations must come to Jesus, for He is the Messiah, Jew and Gentile alike. This is the same thing that is true of the Gentile. Right, The Gentiles were once afar off from the people of Israel. Right, Strangers to the covenant of promise. But when Christ came, He broke down the dividing wall. He brought us near to Him by His blood. So that the Gentile who now believes in the Messiah, likewise is the promise of the forgiveness of sin. And so see that Jesus here in verse 16 is saying that when He returns, He is coming as the victorious Messiah for all who believe in His name, Jew and Gentile alike. But that also as the coming Messiah, He will come to crush His every enemy. And so we need to see, brothers and sisters, how important it is right, to believe on the name of Christ. He is the only Messiah. He is the only one to look to. He is the only one to flee to. And yet for all of us here today who have trusted in the Savior, I want us to know though that these verses also remind us of something else. They remind us of our need to be watchful in our Christian life. This is one reason why that language is used. The time is near. For I am coming soon. He doesn't tell us when He's coming. But He tells us He's coming new, soon or his time is near. Why? He wants to keep us on our toes. He wants us to always be spiritually alert. He doesn't want us to fall into a spiritual stupor, recognizing that the day of His coming is fast approaching. Right? He doesn't want us to, to fall into temptation, but rather to recognize that there is a battle going on for our heart. But re- and recognize that we need to be watchful over it and to be living our life with our eyes towards heaven, waiting in anticipation for the return of Christ. But then also He wants us trusting in Him. Right? Trusting Him. Knowing that we are nothing without Jesus. And believing that, recognizing that, knowing that, that we are then to live every day of our lives in Jesus, recognizing that we can do no good thing without Him cleaving to the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. But Jesus is not only the beginning and end of our salvation, as we talked about earlier, but we need to also understand, brothers and sisters, as we start to draw to a close this morning, that Jesus is the beginning and the end of our Christian life as well. He is the beginning and the end of our Christian life. The righteous continue to live righteously. The holy continue to live in a holy manner. Not because we have that power or ability to do so in ourselves, but rather because the Messiah has come and victoriously triumphed over His every enemy and now has empowered us to do so. We only love Christ because He first loved us. And He demonstrated that love for us by dying for us. So that now we want to live for Him if we live. We want to die for Him if we die. We want to wait on Him until He arrives. We want to work for Him. Everything that we do now, we want to do for Him. Why? Because He has opened our eyes to this truth. He has opened our eyes to this reality. He has granted us the ability to see the the mysteries of the kingdom. 
He has given us ears to hear the preaching. He has indwelt us with the Holy Spirit so that we now can obey the Word and mortify the deeds of the flesh. He has promised us that He who began this good work in us will bring it to completion. So we are to believe. And we are to live as if the time is near. And so the angel's exhortation to, to John and the churches ought to be an exhortation to every single one of us here today as well. To live as Christ the Judge is coming shortly. To live as if the Alpha and the Omega shall soon be here. Right? To live as the Son of David and the bright morning star is approaching. For this is the purpose that the prophecy has now been revealed to us. That we might live in light of it. For the time is near. May we rejoice then, brothers and sisters, right, knowing that the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We are thankful that You have not kept hidden uh, these great and glorious mysteries, but at the right and appointed time You have revealed them to Your people. We ask, Lord, that in light of them, that You would continue by the powerful workings of Your Spirit, uh, cause us to live righteously and to continue to, to be made more holy every day of our lives and to put off all evil doing, and to put off all filthiness in our lives, recognizing that a day is coming in which Christ will return to judge the world. And so, Lord, please, we ask and beg of You that You would help us every day of our life to keep our eyes upon the, the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation, to continue looking to Him, trusting in Him, uh, believing in Him, and cleaving into Him until the day in which He returns to gather us for the blessed state of glory that we so long to be in. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.